want to welcome those of you that are here for the first time. We're glad that you're here. Pray that God blesses your morning and that you'll experience the love of Christ. And also, as you uh, enjoy the Word of God this morning, I'm praying not just for the visitors, but for all of us, that we will be in some way transported in a different way in our worship and our love for God than we ever have been before, that we would have a desire above everything else to know Jesus, that we would want to love Him more as a result of our time today, that we would serve Him more, that we would be more obedient to Him, that we would have a heart to serve the King of Kings, that we would constantly have on our lips the name of Jesus. I was thinking in preparation for today's message in Revelation, in fact, if you want to begin turning there, you can, Revelation chapter 4, about the times that we live in. And uh, I don't have uh, cable, so we don't really watch TV at home, but I do listen to news and I do uh, read uh, pretty avidly what's happening in our state, as well as in our country, as well as in the world. And if you're like me, it's shocking, uh, the events that are unfolding. It seems that every week it seems to be accelerating the shootings and the, and the death and the, um, the unbelievable events of our time. We are living in very difficult and strange times and it seems to be getting worse and worse. And I'm reminded of Paul's word to Timothy in Timothy 3 where he says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And if that isn't a description of our times, and it's my guess... Uh, a very, very safe guess, I would say, that as we move along in the course of our history, that uh, in months ahead and years ahead, these words will even ring more true. And so the word that we're looking at today in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, is important to us. It's God's self-disclosure of himself. It's the apocalypsis, the unveiling of what will happen in the future. As we uh, noted The book of Revelation is broken into three sections. The first section dealt with the first chapter, chapter 1, the things that John had seen. The sections that we've been looking at recently, the seven churches, is what were in Paul's day. And still, we are still in that same age, that church age. But today, as we begin a very significant transition in the book of Revelation, we're moving into the things that will be. And chapter 4 and 5 form an introduction of sorts to the chapters that follow, 6 through 19, where we will see what will happen to this world in the future, including the Great Tribulation. But before we go on, I'd I'd like to read the passage and then pray and ask God to, to guide our time this morning. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders, They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Father, we come to you this morning, and to me it's, a, it's an unbelievable thing that you would reveal such a, an appearance, a glorious open door, that we might know you better. God, that you would tell us the future, that we might be prepared. Father, we ask that you would lead us this morning. And Holy Spirit, I surrender myself to you knowing how inadequate I am to present your word. But I pray that you would take my words and that you would feed those that you love so deeply. That the words would penetrate our heart and that we would become more like you. Change our hearts and our desires. Give us a hunger for the things that have eternal value and last. And God, give us hearts of worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I've been uh, lost in this passage all week. And uh, I feel just a little bit like I have to back up and give a clearer introduction of this passage, but I'm not going to because of time. But I had such a heart this morning that you would grasp the import of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. That you would understand and comprehend what an absolute miracle of God it is and a gift of God that he would allow us to see the future. That's exactly what he's doing for us in this passage in Revelation chapter 4. John begins by saying, after this, and I have to stop there for a moment and say, after what? Well, after that middle section of the age of the church, which we're in right now, after that age is completed, well, when will that age be completed? That age will be completed when the church is raptured by Jesus Christ. That age will be finished when God Himself, Jesus Christ, appears and He comes in the clouds. He doesn't come all the way to earth, but He comes in the clouds and He calls us up and He catches us away for eternity to be with Him. After that point, that's, that's the break between chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. When that church age is completed, we will go to be with the Lord. He will come for His church. It's worth noting that in Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation and it's not mentioned again until chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. 
The reason is the church is not involved in the worldly matters anymore because the church has been taken to be with Christ. Now, we're told about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. The scripture says that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now I want to take a moment to distinguish the rapture from the second coming of Christ. There, there are three main differences that I'll detail briefly here. But first I want to talk about the word itself because you'll note that the word rapture is actually not in the Bible. The, the word rapture comes as an English translation of the, uh, of the Latin Vulgate, which is rapturos, which is what is in the scripture in Latin. And what it means is to be caught up or caught away. In fact, most of you in your translations, whatever translation that you're using, will find that the word is caught up or caught away in 1 Thessalonians. The rapture is going to be a secret event. And what I mean by secret is that it's not going to be visible to the world. It's not going to be something that all of a sudden people see the coming of Christ. They, they won't see it. As scripture teaches, all of a sudden one is going to be working in the field and, and one is going to be taken away and they won't know what happened. One is in bed with another person and all of a sudden that person is gone. And the world is going to have some very amazing efforts that they're going to be uh, uh, wrangling over trying to describe and explain what happened to the Christian community. Aliens and, you know, an inversion of atomic uh, physics, the whole thing. They're going to be coming up with all kinds of explanations, but the church will be gone and they will be dealing with that. But it will be secret. It will also be sudden, unannounced and unpredictable. The scripture makes it clear that from this point on, there is no prophecy that yet needs to be fulfilled that hasn't already been fulfilled in order for Christ to rapture the church. What that means is that today could be the day. And if it's not today, tomorrow could be the day. And if it's not tomorrow, the day after that or the day after that. Every day could be the day of Christ's coming. And my question to you even now is, are you ready? Do you know for certain that if Christ were to come, that you would be taken to be with him forever? The third thing that we know about the rapture is that it will precede the great tribulation. The Bible says that God has not appointed us to suffer wrath but to rescue us from the wrath of God that's coming. And so God's purpose for his church is not that you would go through the agony that's coming in the great tribulation, but he wants to deliver you from that. And if you have believed on the name of Christ and if you are a follower of his and that you truly love him in your heart, then you will be saved. You have no fear of the tribulation. In fact, from chapter 6 on is an accounting of what will happen to those who are left behind but not the kind of thing that you need to be worried about personally. But we do have an obligation to rescue as many as we can and to tell and speak the truth to as many as we can until that day. Now, the second coming is different from the rapture in three significant ways. First of all, it's going to be visible. The Bible says that all of the world will see the second coming of Christ. It's, told about, we're talk, it's talked about in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes to the earth for his church with the tens of thousands and thousands upon tens of thousands of his saints will come with Christ. Having already been with him because of the rapture, they are going to be returning with Christ in a visible way. The Bible also says that this event is going to be very predictable in its timing. 
Now, we don't know what day it's going to happen or what year, but what we do know is that when all the events have completed, they're unfolding in the book of Revelation, at that point, the second coming of Christ will be very predictable. It will also be uh, following the Great Tribulation. So, those are the differences, among others, between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. But John says in verse 1 here that before him a door was standing open in heaven. Now, John isn't the first person in Scripture to have a view of heaven. He's not the first one who's ever seen a revelation of God himself or of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel had a very similar revelation. Daniel had a very similar revelation as well as Isaiah. In fact, even in the New Testament, you remember uh, Stephen. He saw that just before he was being stoned and even as he was being stoned, he looked up and he could see into heaven, into into the throne room of God. And we also have Peter when heaven was opened and, and the, the four-cornered sheet was lowered down explaining and, uh, the, the fact that the door was being opened to the Gentile community. And so it's not new that people were able to see into heaven. However, John is the only one who was ever invited to come into the throne room of God. He saw the door and yet he was also ushered in by invitation from Jesus Christ himself to see and to witness not only the throne of God but the things that were to come in the future of history. Now John says that this voice was like a trumpet again going back to the same voice that he heard in chapter 1 and Jesus says to him that he's to, he's to come up and so Jesus invites John to come up into his presence and I, I'm reminded of, of Moses on Mount Sinai when God took up residence for a temporary period of time on that mount And he invited Moses to come up that he might disclose to Moses and to the people of God his standards for living. But in this case, Jesus Christ is summoning John that he might come up to him and understand the things that are to come so that we might know the times that we live in, so that we might know what's coming, so that we might live rightly. Now, I find it incredible that Jesus has done this with John. I mean, John was the disciple, one of his most loved disciples. In fact, I'm I'm astonished by it, but I can understand it because of Jesus' love for John. Of course, he was one of the disciples. It makes sense that he would choose John. But what flabbergasts me is that God and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, have an intense desire to disclose themselves to us. Not just here, but as the Bible says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them... He is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and disclose myself to him. So Jesus wants to disclose himself to you. He wants to share his heart with you. He wants to reveal himself to you. And so he reveals himself to John that he might see what would take place after the rapture of the church. And John says that at that moment, at once, he was in the Spirit. Now, there are a lot of uh, interpretations of what in the Spirit means. I mean, oftentimes when I'm singing or worshiping, I feel like I'm in the Spirit. I'm completely absorbed and taken away in worship. But what's happening here with John is different than that type of experience. I believe what's happening with John is he's actually breaking through the time and and geographic barrier that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. He is being transported from 
the day that he was living in to future events. You see, as John is sharing this vision with us, he's not saying, and, and, and after that, the next thing that's going to happen is this. No. He's experiencing it as if it's happening at that moment in reality. And in reality, he was experiencing it. Because God allowed him to break through the barriers that we face as humans. The time-space dimension. And so John was, was taken by the Spirit of God past that time-space continuum and was ushered into the future, allowed to witness the events as they unfolded. So the things that we're reading about in Revelation aren't predictions. They are the reality of what John saw happening at that future time. But to us, they're prophetic because they haven't yet occurred. But for John, they're as good as finished. They've already taken place. And yet, they are to come. I'm reminded of that, uh, that movie with Michael Fox. You remember Back to the Future? It's been a long time. Probably some of you high schoolers don't, e- don't even remember it. Anyway, Back to the Future was a story about this young guy that met this eccentric professor. And, uh, you know, the, the guy says he's got this space machine in it, and it looks like a, you know, a fancy race car, uh, all painted silver. And anyway, the, the storyline goes that these guys actually change the course of the future by going into the future and making some changes and by going into the past and making some changes. And they were able actually to, to restructure and change the course of history. Now, the Bible doesn't speak anything of that. The idea that we can actually change the course of history by going back. But I will tell you something right now that is amazing. Is that every man, every woman, every young person in this room, you can have an impact on the course of history. Because we already know what is coming. We know what's past. But because the Bible has told us what the future holds, we can warn people and tell people now so that the course of their future is forever changed. God's given you that privilege, that honor, that obligation, that commission to make sure that men and women who don't yet know the future because they don't know God, that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might be spared the wrath that's to come. Now John says that as he came into this throne room, the first thing he saw was was the throne in heaven, was someone sitting on it. And it says that the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So he begins to describe piece by piece the, the, the aspects of this heavenly throne room so that we can see and understand. And he begins by describing a throne and And really, the book of Revelation is about the throne of God. Forty-seven times it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. More times than any other book of the Bible. The throne of God is a dominant theme in the book of Revelation, indicating God's supremacy over all human authority and over all human events. The bottom line is is that God, even now, is sitting on His throne. Jesus Christ is sitting on on his throne. Now, I don't know about you, but as I watch the news and I watch the events politically and otherwise and and I watch the the international intrigue that's happening with, you know, missile launches. I mean, we've got all kinds of nuclear missiles aimed at our island and at our country. And I look at all that and there's at times this used to be a fear that would well up in me 
A fear even when, when politics would go a different direction than I desired. A fear when I saw corruption and evil. But no more. Because I know that God is sitting on His throne. And I don't care what you're going through. All of us are going through things. I was so touched last week as we had that time of prayer at the end. And so many of you were transparent and vulnerable and, and um, were indicating the various needs that you had. And I realized again that we are a, a fellowship full of people who have various needs of various kinds. Every one of us. And all I can tell you in response to that, besides we want to pray for you and we want to be a church that supports and loves one another, is that God is on the throne in your life. God is still on the throne. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care what your situation is like. I don't care how desperate it seems. I don't care how broken you may be. God is on the throne. And He is in control of all of human history. And we have absolutely nothing to fear. Not now, not ever. Now John begins to give a description of God. And as 1 Timothy tells us, God lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And right at that moment, I'm thinking, okay, John is going to describe God. I'd love to see what he looks like. You know, does he look like that kind of uh, wimpy, girly-looking man that Jesus is in all the pictures I've ever seen of him? Is that what he really looks like? Well, no, I, I, we we're left still wondering to some degree what God looks like. Because John begins to describe him in terms of gemstones. And I'm thinking, gemstones? I mean, that, you know... But that's what he witnesses, the flaming brightness of the presence and the glory of God. The best that John can do is to describe it as gems and the multifaceted aspects of their brilliance. And he talks about two different stones. A jasper, which both of these stones we're fairly unfamiliar with in our time, but jasper was a, a brilliant, clear, diamond-like stone. And the carnelian, or sardis in some of your translations, is a dazzling reddish stone similar to a ruby. Now, why these two stones? Well, some have conjectured that the jasper represents the purity of God and the carnelian represents the shed blood of Christ for our sins. That may be so. I think probably another aspect that, that's possible, another possibility for the purpose of these stones is that in the Old Testament the high priest wore a, this, this breastplate. And in that breastplate, there were 12 stones set within that plate, representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Interesting, the first and last of those stones were Jasper and Carnelian. Interesting that the first and last son, Reuben and Benjamin, by saying the Jasper and Carnelian, it could very well be that Jesus by allowing John to see this, is that not only is he the high priest forever, according to the, the, the aspect of Melchizedek, but also that on his heart still is the entire beginning to end of his people. The people of Israel, but also the people of God. And that is his brilliance, his crown, his glory. The church, the people of God. John goes on and he talks about the fact that he sees something like a rainbow encircling the throne. Of course, we know where rainbows came from. God made them. But he didn't make them at the first day of creation or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh. God made a rainbow as a promise to Noah that he would never make it rain again. He would never flood the earth again. And so he gives this promise following a judgment. But here we see the rainbow encircling the throne for John to see 
And I believe it's a promise that before the judgment comes that we have the promise of God's deliverance, of God's rescuing the people of God. And so he sees these brilliant lights, this encircling rainbow, and then he begins to describe something else, the 24 elders. And if you follow with me in verse 4, he says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And so he begins to explain this phenomenal vision of the throne room of God. He's seen God and now his eyes begin to gaze to other aspects of the throne room. And he begins to see these 24 thrones surrounding God and on those thrones are seated 24 elders. Now again, it says that these, uh, these thrones were occupied by these elders and of course thrones have to do with the exalted position and uh, judicial re- uh, responsibilities of these elders. It also tells us they're dressed in white, which most often represents the righteousness of Christ, the clothing, the raiment that he gives us upon entrance into the kingdom of God, and also adorned with crowns. Now in scripture, there are two, there are two words in the Greek for crowns. One is diadem, and that has to do with royalty. That, you're given that crown because you are royal. You come from royal lineage. But there's another type of crown, which happens to be the word that John uses here, called uh, uh, Stephanos. And it's a victory wreath. It's given to someone who has overcome. Someone who has, has uh, either been in a race or in some sort of a competition and they've won. They've completed the course. And we know from our previous uh, look at the seven churches that Jesus promises to those who overcome a crown, a Stephanos. And so we know that this crown is sitting on the heads. It's a golden crown of these 24 elders. So the question is, who are these guys? Now, there are a whole slew of ideas that people have had about who these 24 elders are. And I don't claim to have the last word on this, but I've, I've uh, studied this diligently and I've, I'm going to present to you my conclusions and, and you can come to your own conclusions. Some have said that they're, um, that they're, uh, that they're actually angels, that these, these uh, elders are angelic beings of a very high order. Now, there are three problems with that conclusion. The first is, is that uh, elders are never really, that term elder is never used to describe an angel. It's always used to describe a human leader within the church of Jesus Christ. So that's the first problem that we have. A second problem is that these elders have golden Stephanos crowns. And nowhere in scripture does it say that, that the angels ever overcome anything or ever promised crowns. Nor are they ever promised white raiment that comes from the righteousness of Christ. So there's a problem with that view. Now, others have said that these 24 elders represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and 12 disciples of the New Testament. Now, I think that sounds wonderful because you got 24. It works out perfectly. 12 and 12, 24. Well, there's a problem that I have with that view in that John is in this vision seeing these things unfold. And if John was there in the vision as a part of the vision, then he is seeing himself in the future after the rapture of the church sitting on a throne. Would that not be correct? If it's one of the twelve. Then he'd also see the other eleven disciples. Now he might not know what Elijah looked like. You know, he might not know what Moses looked like. But he definitely knew what his other disciples looked like. 
And if I were John, I'd be going high five around the 12, you know. I'd be, hey, all right, great to see you guys. So it's true, we are going to rule and reign. But John never even mentions that he recognizes any of these elders. Now that doesn't mean it, it's not possible that that's the case. But clearly, that's a problem. The other thing is, is that uh, the 12 disciples are told in Matthew uh, 19 that they're going to be sitting on 12 tr- thrones at the renewal of all things and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the renewal, this is after the great tribulation, this is the renewal of all things when we have a new heaven and a new earth, that's when the scripture teaches that the 12 will be sitting on thrones. So I'm not convinced that the 12 patriarchs and the 12 disciples are the correct interpretation of these 24 elders. My view is that these 24 elders are 24 leaders from the church age, from our our age, from the, the culmination of the entire history of the church age. Let me give you the reason for that, and I've kind of already detailed these and the reasons why I didn't believe the other positions were accurate. I think it best fulfills and fits with the details of Scripture. I think that it fits with the biblical term of elders, which is always almost exclusively applied to human church leaders. Um, I I don't have time to give some more explanations about uh, 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 Israel, except to say that with Israel there was always just one high priest, but there were 24 courses of representatives among the leaders of the rest of the priests of Israel. There were hundreds and hundreds, sometimes even thousands of priests that led the people of Israel. And they needed representatives to represent the various family lines and the various responsibilities. And there were, uh, according to Josephus, 24 of these leaders who represented the people of Israel. One high priest, 24 elders or leaders within the community of priests, and then the rest of the priests. And I believe that it fits with Scripture that Jesus Christ, of course, is the high priest now, and that now there are 24 elders or leaders among his church who are representing the entire body of Christ throughout eternity. It also fits with a white clothing that's promised to New Testament believers and, uh, and Old Testament believers who have put their faith in the coming Christ and also fits with the biblical use of crowns awarded to believers. Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, what does it really matter? Is it really that critical who these people are? Well, yes and no. The yes part is that if that's the case, then there are going to be those among us, historically speaking at least, from the church, who are going to be sitting on thrones with God ruling and reigning, which is what Scripture has already taught us and told us about the believers in Jesus Christ, is that you will be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood representing God, serving Him, doing His bidding, and that God has a purpose and a plan for you after the rapture of the church, which means that nothing that you are doing or living in right now is ever wasted. So as you mature, you will be taking that maturity and that experience and that devotion and that obedience with you into the kingdom of God, which is why it's so important that you not just think, okay, I prayed the prayer, now I want to do whatever I want. I want you to go into the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning with God being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Now, John begins to describe some other sights and sounds that are fantastic. He talks about the the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder. And this goes back to the book of Exodus again and uh, the presentation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai when the first time is recorded in Scripture these rumblings and these lightnings and these peals of thunder. And it has to do with the coming judgment of God. It is a distant thunder in preparation 
for this work that God is going to do at the end of time when he judges the world for their sin. You see, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to life and eternal life in Jesus Christ. But his time of patience will come to an end. And I don't believe it can be that much longer from now that that patience will come to an end. Right now we live in a great period of grace, an opportunity to share our faith openly and freely. But I don't believe that that will continue indefinitely. I believe there will come a time when not only will we not be able to speak without some form of persecution resulting from that, uh, from that testimony, but I also believe the door not long from now will be shut on the grace of God and the church will be raptured and the judgment of God beginning with the seven seals on the scroll will begin. And it will be a terrifying time, but it's not a time that anyone needs to be involved in if they choose to be a believer in Jesus Christ now. John also notices seven lamps and we know from our study of chapter 1 that these seven lamps, these blazing lamps are the sevenfold spirit of God representing the fullness and perfection of his ministries. And he sees a sea of glass and I, I, don't, I wish I had more time to, to go into greater detail about this but the sea of glass is a, is a reflection back on the laver in the Old Testament temple. The laver was a great bronze bowl that was used that the priests would come and had to do their ceremonial cleansings in. And they had to be clean and purified before God before they would be useful to his purposes. And so the priests would come and they'd wash. And the, the idea was that they, were, they would, were cleansing themselves from sin. They were being purified according to God's plan. Now, interestingly, it was filled with, obviously, with water, with a liquid. But now in John's vision of heaven, it's not a liquid anymore. But it's like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And we're told in Ezekiel and Daniel that it's a solid, it's a solid sea. It's not liquid any longer. And what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that the purifying work of Christ is once and for all accomplished. We don't need to be dipping our hands in there every day. We can stand on it. It's the finished work of Christ. Clear as crystal, beautiful, reflecting the glory and power and majesty of Jesus Christ who's sitting on the throne. Now John's attention is caught by four living creatures. Some of your translations, if you have a, a, a King James translation, says beasts, and, and actually the translation a living creature is, is much more accurate. These are the same creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10. Uh, he referred to them as cherubim, and, uh, and then also Daniel saw in chapter 7, and he referred to them as seraphim. These are the very same creatures that, uh, that these Old Testament prophets saw when they were able to look into the heavenly realm of God himself. Now, a sidebar note here that's significant. Do you know who the greatest cherubim of all time is? Does anybody know? Satan. He was the most exalted cherubim. He was called by God in Ezekiel the guardian cherubim. In other words, he was the one who was in charge of the other cherubim. He was the most exalted of all God's creation. He was beautiful beyond description. His primary responsibility was the leading of worship in the throne room of God. Now we know that uh, according to scripture that his heart became proud and rebellious on account, as scripture says, of his beauty. And he corrupted his wisdom because of his splendor. And as a result, he was cast out of heaven along with one-third of the angels of heaven who also rebelled. But these cherubim are like Satan was at one point. 
And so it gives you an idea of the extreme, exalted, powerful position and authority that they had. Realizing how terribly powerful Satan is and yet his, his power is, is overshadowed by far by the power of God. And yet Satan himself was a cherubim, which brings me to the conclusion that these cherubim have choices. They have the option to either serve or reject, to obey or to rebel God against God. And I find it interesting that God gives us that same choice that he gives his most exalted creatures that he's made in heaven for the purpose of worship. And he gives us that same choice. Now, he talks about their likeness. One is like a lion, an ox, and then another is like a man, and another is like an eagle. Interesting, same descriptions that we have in Ezekiel and in Daniel. Um, who are these creatures? What is the significance? There are a variety of opinions again on this. Uh, there's a rabbinical saying that dated back to 300 AD that says, the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull or the ox. The mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion and the mightiest among all is man. So maybe this is a description of the almighty power of God, a reflection of his glory, a reflection of his character and his nature. Well, that's a possibility. I think there's another possibility that I'm more intrigued with and that is takes us back as many of the Old Testament prophecies do to the Old Testament. If you recall in the Old Testament, there was in the tabernacle the Holy of Holies and then the outer court and camped around those, that tent of meeting, that tabernacle and also in the, in the temple were the camping of the various tribes of Israel, three on each side, north, south, east, west. Interestingly, Judah to the east was camped with two other tribes. Do you know what the, uh, the banner or the standard or the, or the insignia emblem of Judah was? A lion. On the west was Ephraim with two other families. His standard or banner that he was camped under was the ox. Reuben to the south under his banner, a man. And Dan to the north under the standard of his family was an eagle. Interesting. So what? Big deal. What does it mean? Well, it means that in God's design of the human tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, there was such a perfection to his design that he, as Hebrews tells us, that the temple on earth was a copy of the temple in heaven. That's why God goes to such great length through Jesus Christ and through the revelation of the prophets and to Moses to tell them exactly how they're to build it, even to the exact specifications and the materials they're to use and how it's to be done and the timing and all of these various things are to be done perfectly. Why? Because the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the temple in heaven, the throne room of God himself. And so these, these four beasts, the... the uh, uh, as we talked about the, the ox, the lion, the man, and the eagle, they're representative of what's happening in heaven, but now we have a copy of it on earth. And so it's very possible that these four beasts or these four living creatures are merely copies of this heavenly throne room experience of these highly exalted angelic beings who are worshiping God and leading the heavenly hosts in worship. The Bible says that they had six wings that covered their eyes in verse 8. In other words, they were all seeing. Nothing escaped their penetrating gaze. They know everything that's happening. Everything that's happening on earth. 
And we also know from verse 8, if you look with me there, that they never stopped worshiping God. Day and night. What are they saying? They're saying, love, love, love. Oh, no, sorry. Groovy, groovy, groovy. Or, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. No. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be completely other. It means to be morally absolutely pure. It means to be physically blameless. These living creatures could have said any number of things, but they choose these words and and, and the fact that they're said three times only is an emphasis on the perfection of God. That He is so otherly, so different, so separated from us in His holiness, His beauty, His perfection. And all of His other attributes, the love and the faithfulness and all the other things that we know about God are secondary to that primary quality of God Himself. Absolutely holy. Amazing to me that we're told in Peter that Jesus has called us to that same standard, that you would be other set apart from the world, not like others, but like Jesus Christ Himself, holy, 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 who was and is to come, emphasizing His deity and eternal nature. And they give glory and honor and thanks to God. I wish I had time to explain all these words, but I think we understand for the most part what they mean. And they give this thanks and honor and glory to Him who sits on the throne and to Him who lives forever and ever. And as they do this, and I think as I read the scripture this morning, forgive me, I I skipped part of the verse in verse 9, where it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. So we know that these living creatures are constantly consumed with the worship of God. And every time that they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and they finish out their phrase of praise, the 24 elders, that's their cue. It's like, okay boys, that is our cue. Everybody, off your thrones, on your face, falling down and worshiping God. You know what the word worship means in Greek? Proskuneo? It means to prostrate oneself before someone else. It means that you are on your face before God. That's what the word worship means. And that's what these 24 elders do. And we also know that they lay down their crowns before God, remembering that the crowns were a reward for their overcoming faithfulness. Now, why did they lay down their crowns? I mean, if I, you know, somebody just gives me something, I'm not like, well, gee, here's back. I I like when somebody gives me a gift, I kind of like to hold on to it for a little while. When somebody gives me a birthday gift or a Christmas gift, I, unless it's a fruitcake or something, they're not going to get it back. But here we find, we find these 24 elders having been given this reward and now all of a sudden they're casting it down before the throne of God. Why? Well, thank you. Humility is part of it. But I think it even goes beyond that. I think what's happening is that the 24 elders are acknowledging and recognizing 
that the only reason they were able to overcome was the grace of God. The only reason they were able to stand, the only reason they were able to even receive the gospel in the first place, the only reason that they even understood the word of God, the only reason that, that they were even called or elected into salvation was because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, what they're saying is that all praise and glory goes to you. Yes, you've given us the crown, but we're undeserving. And we rightly and appropriately lay them before you once again as a form of worship. And they declare him to be worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he's the creator of all things. There are a few things that strike me about this passage and I'm going to close. This passage is all about the introduction into God's throne room, but what I see happening here most is worship. What strikes me about this is that the people and the creatures that God has created and the angelic hosts that God has created and these 24 elders, whoever they might be, the ones who are the very closest to Him seem to be consumed with only one thing, the worship of God. I meditated and thought about that quite a bit this week and I thought to myself, you know, there's something significant to this and I believe the significance is, is that anyone who is truly close to the Father is going to be consumed with worship. Any one of us who are truly absorbed with Jesus Christ and who know Him and who are being given entrance through the disclosure of Jesus Christ into His presence on a daily basis through the Word and through reading and worship, that if that is truly happening in our lives, there is going to be one singular response. And that is going to be awe and praise and worship for Jesus Christ. Now, there are a few other things that I want to point out that we've learned in this passage. The first is that God is on His throne. The second is that God has a desire to reveal Himself to you. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to worship Him. The third thing is that those who are closest to Him are consumed with His holiness and His worthiness of all their praise and worship, which is what I just mentioned a moment ago. The fourth thing is that by telling us these things, He has a very clear objective, and that's that you would fix your eyes and live your lives for eternal things. That you wouldn't be consumed with this life because there's something that's happening even now as I've been teaching and sharing the Word of God with you this morning as we've been worshiping in the heavenly realm. We're told that all the while worship has been taking place. So when we worship or when you worship or when I worship, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm joining what's already happening night and day unceasing before the throne of God and that's worship and love for God. God doesn't want you to miss that. Jesus Christ doesn't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss that. I think the last thing that we can learn from this passage is that God wants you to be ready for His coming. Jesus Christ wants you to be ready for His coming. You see, there, there will be those, I believe, who go to church and those who do good works, those who are very wonderful, nice people, those who maybe even are involved in some capacity of service in the church, who quite potentially may miss the rapture of the church. Even as Jesus said, that some would come to him and say, but Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And Jesus said to them, away, depart from me, I never knew you. 
You see, Jesus isn't interested in your service primarily. He's not interested in your church attendance primarily. He's not interested in your good works. What Jesus wants is He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants everything. He will not be satisfied with anything less. He will not be satisfied if you piecemeal parts of your life away to Him and say, you can have this part, but not this part. You can have that part, but not this part. Jesus Christ says that He will not be satisfied with anything less than total, wholehearted devotion to God. Total obedience to His commands. Total worship of Him. Total love for Him. That's the kind of man or the kind of woman or the kind of young person that Jesus Christ says will be entering into His kingdom. So Jesus is telling us these things in advance. Why? Because He doesn't want any of you to miss out on the glorious kingdom and the reign and rule of Jesus Christ that will go from now to eternity. It's already happening. But it has yet to happen for us in His presence. But that time is coming shortly. And as I prepared for this sermon, I I love you all. God's put that love in my heart. I, I couldn't generate it. But I care deeply about your spiritual condition. I care deeply about the condition of the men and women and the young people of the island of Kauai and the world. But you are the people I know and love. And I don't want any of you to miss what God has prepared for His people. My encouragement to you would be to lose yourselves in the glory of Jesus Christ. To lose yourselves in worship and love for Him. To make a decision even today that there's no turning back, that you are 100% for Him, no compromise, no holding back, and that you will allow this powerful passage that takes us into the future to be a motivation for you to communicate clearly to your friends and neighbors and family and co-workers who have yet to make a decision for Christ to share with them the good news of the Lord. I asked John um, to do something a little different today and that's that he would lead us in the hymn Holy, Holy, Holy. And I want to encourage you that if you feel led, I want you to do whatever you want to do. I'm probably going to be kneeling but I'd like you to feel free to Do whatever you feel called to do to properly worship God, knowing that all of heaven is worshiping Him now and that we have a privilege, even at this moment, to enter in and participate in that throne room activity of God as the four living creatures call out the glory of Jesus Christ and as the 24 elders prostrate themselves before the throne and cast down the beautiful gifts and crowns given by Jesus Christ alone. So as you feel led and As you would like, you demonstrate your worship how you like. You can feel free to sit or to raise your hands or whatever would be appropriate for you. But I want us to close with worship to God.